Mark 3 will be where we are, so turn to there if you're not already there. We're looking at verse 20. We're starting there. I know it it may read in your Bible like it reads in mine, that that's kind of verses 20 and 21 or the end of the previous section, and then verse 22 through kind of 35 begins a new section. But I've included verse 20 with what we're doing this morning because I do think it fits, and hopefully you'll see that as we read through the passage. So I'll start at Mark 3, verse 20, and read down through verse 35. This is what Mark writes to us, speaking about Jesus. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Ahora en español, Marcos capítulo 3, versos 20 hasta 35. Y agopose de nuevo la gente, de modo que ellos ni aún podían comer pan. Y como lo oyeron, los suyos vinieron para prenderle, porque decían, está fuera de sí. Y los escribas que habían venido de Jerusalén, Decían que tenía a Beelzebub, y que por el príncipe de los demonios echaba fuera los demonios. Y habiéndolos llamado, les decía en parábolas, ¿Cómo puede Satanás echar fuera a Satanás? Y si algún reino contra sí mismo fuera dividido, no puede permanecer el tal reino. Y si alguna casa fuera dividida mismo y fuera dividido, no puede permanecer antes tiene fin. Nadie puede saquear las aljas del valiente entrando en su casa, si antes no ataré al valiente y entonces saqueré su casa. De cierto, os digo que todos los pecados serán perdonados a los hijos de los hombres y las blasfemias cualesquiera con que blasfemaren. Mas cualquiera que blasfemare contra el Espíritu Santo no tiene jamás perdón. Mas está expuesto a eterno juicio, porque decían, tiene espíritu inmundo. 
vienen después sus hermanos y su madre y estando fuera, enviaron a él llamándole. Y la gente estaba sentada alrededor de él y, y le dijeron, He aquí, tu madre y tus hermanos te buscan fuera. Y él les respondió diciendo, ¿Quién es mi madre y mis hermanos? Y mirando a los que estaban sentados alrededor de él, dijo, He aquí mi madre y hermanos. Porque cualquiera que hiciera la voluntad de Dios, este es mi hermano y mi hermana y mi madre. Let's pray. Lord, we pray with the psalmist that we will meditate on your precepts and we will fix our eyes on your ways. Help us to do that this morning through this text. Give us insight and give us an adoration and a love for Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. One of the more interesting book titles that I've come across recently was a book called App Atheism, How to Share When They Don't Care. And as the title suggests, that word app atheism is a kind of fusing together of two different words. Atheism on the one hand, which I think we know what that means, right? A not believing in God and then apathy, just not caring. And so by putting these two words together, what the author was Communicating is something that he has kind of begun to see across our nation and even many places in the West is that many people don't necessarily have positive or negative views of religion. Many people are just increasingly not even caring about the question altogether. So that for some, even questions of religious truth or questions about Jesus is met with just kind of neutrality or, in some cases, complete apathy. And so you've probably, maybe you've been involved in a conversation with a family member, coworker, or someone where you maybe try and bring up Jesus. You want to engage in some sort of significant conversation with them, and they just kind of, oh, yeah, Jesus, great guy. What, what are we having for lunch today? Let's, let's move on to the next thing. Uh, but the reality is, is that if we think about, okay, how do we address people like that and have conversations with people like that or think about this idea, I think one of the greatest challenges we face is helping people see that if you actually look close enough at Jesus, the only response you cannot have to him is apathy. That to come away from Jesus and just simply conclude, yeah, he's a good dude, I don't have anything more to say, probably reveals you haven't looked too closely at Jesus. I know you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, and maybe you're familiar with his comments that I, it sounds like in this quote he was speaking directly about Mark 3, 20 through 35, but listen to what he says. He, he's considering some of those same things that were going on in his day, people just kind of dismissing Jesus as a good teacher, and he says, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. And what that communicates and what I think Mark 3 communicates is that we as Christians most of all need to recognize how strongly people reacted to Jesus 
so that one, we can keep ourselves from maybe falling into that category, but two, that we can maybe press our non-believing friends to some degree. Because Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, we're already seeing this in Mark. I know we're only three chapters in, but he's like a magnet, right? Like some people are, are just attracted to Jesus because of what they see in him. They want more of him. Others are repelled by him, and increasingly so. The only thing that really doesn't happen very often in Mark's Gospel, especially, is that people encounter Jesus and then they leave without an opinion. Nearly everybody who encounters him leaves with some sort of opinion one way or another. And as you can see, our passage this morning, it kind of breaks up into a few different groups. And again, going back to C.S. Lewis, he had that famous liar, lunatic, Lord kind of threefold. Either you see Jesus as one of these. We might title our sermon or our passage this morning as lunatic, demonic, or Lord. Those are the three kind of categories that are going on here. The first bit, verses 20 and 21, Jesus' family comes and they think he is a lunatic. They say literally Jesus is out of his mind. And then verses 22 through 30, these scribes came down from Jerusalem and they say that Jesus is actually demonic. He's not out of his mind, but the devil himself has gotten into Jesus' mind. And then at the end... Jesus' true family are those who say Jesus is Lord. So let's look first at this first claim, Jesus is a lunatic. Verse 20 there, it kind of begins how several of our passages have begun with another crowd gathering. If you'll remember last week, Jesus went up on the mountain. He called his 12 disciples to him after he had just retreated from the crowds. But here he returns back again, back home, and the crowd knows where he is. And so they're gathering again so that it says they could not even eat. Jesus couldn't even enjoy a meal. He's being interrupted in very basic kind of activities throughout his day. And this time, though, something new happens in verse 21. Jesus's family shows up. His Mother, brothers, and sisters, we learned that at the end. His mother and brothers are the ones who are here. They, those are the same ones in verse 21. So his family shows up, and it says they went out to seize Jesus. And that's not because they were concerned for his safety. We want to protect Jesus from these crowds, because Mark tells us, for they were saying he is out of his mind. It seems like his family was trying to save him from himself. They thought Jesus had kind of taken this whole Messiah thing too far. They were not really thrilled about the trajectory of where his whole ministry was going. The crowds were ready to put Jesus on the throne, but his family actually had different plans. They thought Jesus needed perhaps to be admitted because he was out of his mind. And unlike the crowds who maybe were just kind of amazed by Jesus's miracles, it seems like his family knew pretty well what his message was. It seems like they had heard him say things like the kingdom of God is at hand. Or, son, your sins are forgiven. Or the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And they're saying Jesus, like Messiah, the son of God. No, this is Joseph's son. He's the son of a carpenter. Like he grew up in our town. He ate at our table. We know him. He's just... A man. And it seems as if their familiarity with Jesus, being so close to him, watching him grow up, is actually what 
bred a little bit of contempt in them about Jesus. It probably made them a little bit hesitant that this guy who was getting all this fame was someone that they knew and that they were close with and and that they, in fact, didn't really get what all the buzz was about. They thought Jesus must be insane. That must be where he's going. And even as I mentioned at the beginning that apathy is is kind of a growing thing when it comes to religious matters, I, I do also think that this claim you are out of your mind, still exist, especially for followers of Jesus. A couple hundred years ago, if you believed what the Bible taught, believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was both fully human and fully divine, that you believed that God is triune, that is, he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a couple hundred years ago, you would have been told you were crazy because that was a big controversy. A hundred years ago, if you believed that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he performed miracles, that he physically, bodily rose from the dead, you would have been told you were probably out of your mind because that was a big issue. Today, if you believe in biblical view of marriage, manhood, womanhood, if you believe that Jesus is the only way to God and that there are not other avenues to God, then you might be told that very same thing, that you are out of your mind. And the points of controversy might change over time. They do, but the conclusion is often the same, right? That you believe something that's crazy. But let me just say, I think we can be encouraged. First, because Jesus himself received this label. But secondly, because of with all the talk of being on the right side of history these days, the more you live in the Bible, the more you realize that the right side of history has already been written. And it's the side that Jesus is on, and it is the side of the gospel and biblical truth. And if we cling to that, no matter what people around us say, then we're going to be okay, no matter how unpopular it may be. And imagine Jesus' own family saying these things. Maybe that caused him a little bit of turmoil inside. Maybe that caused him a little bit of angst. We don't know, but he didn't seem to be too upset about it. And so that's one layer of Unbelief is where his family's stepping in. They're saying, Jesus, you're crazy. And it seems like if I can go to this point, it, it seems like it's they're being kind of hung up by the humanity of Jesus. Like they know too well that Jesus is a human. And they're just focused on that. And they can't also see that perhaps he is more than just a man. Perhaps he is God in the flesh. So it seemed like that's what was kind of causing them to stumble. This dude's just a man. Whereas in the next part, when we get to the scribes coming in, their layer of unbelief is a little bit deeper. Their claim is that Jesus is possessed, and it seems like they're hung up by his claims to divinity. That they recognize that he has some power that ordinary people don't have, but they cannot see that that power is indeed from God, they have to conclude that it's from another source. So it's not like they saw Jesus working miracles and they just said, oh, it's just a hoax. They actually recognized that there was power attached to Jesus's ministry, and yet they come up with another conclusion. So look at verse 22. Scribes who came down from Jerusalem, so maybe they were sent by 
the high priest, the, the higher-ups in Jerusalem to go investigate what Jesus was doing. They came from Jerusalem, and they were saying, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, which is just a name they would have had for Satan or a demon. And listen to this. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so I recognize that over the next few verses, we're going to answer a question that I'm sure is on all of your minds. What is this whole blasphemy against the Holy Spirit thing that Jesus gets to in verse 29? Or if you've ever been told, hey, there's an unforgivable sin. Did you know that? Maybe for some of you, you're like, what do you mean an unforgivable sin? How can that be? Well, it's this passage and the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke that lead us to that question. So we're going to deal with that question in in depth here in a moment of what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Is there such a thing as a sin that won't be forgiven? But before we get there, I think it's important to trace how Jesus arrives there. And so the first thing is to ask, okay, what are the scribes claiming about Jesus? Well, they're recognizing he has spiritual power, like I mentioned. They're not denying that. But what they're saying is the source of Jesus's power is not divine, but it's demonic. The origin of Jesus's power is not heaven. It's actually hell. And even as I say that out loud, I'm like shuddering because this kind of charge is something that we don't often here. But this is what they were saying about Jesus. And it's a serious charge. They're not simply rejecting Jesus's ministry, saying there's nothing to see here, folks, let's move on. They're actually saying something far worse than that. They're saying that Jesus is not here to save the world. He's actually here to destroy the world. That he's not here to rescue human beings. He's actually here to enslave them. He's actually an agent, an instrument of Satan. And what they've done with this claim is they've made God the Father a liar because he testified to Jesus in his baptism that this is my beloved son. So they're saying God's a liar. Jesus is a demon. And here's the the main issue is they're saying the work of the spirit through Jesus's life is actually the work of Satan. So they've gone to that length. And then Jesus, he responds. How does he respond? Well, for the first time in Mark's gospel, we read that Jesus calls them to him and he spoke to them in parables. Now, parables were designed to communicate a truth, but also to kind of conceal things so that only those who had ears to hear would understand. But those who had already hardened their hearts against Jesus, they would have trouble understanding what he was saying. So that's what he does. So Jesus just kind of lays it out there, right? How can Satan cast out Satan? Then he goes through these other scenarios. And basically what he's trying to show these scribes from Jerusalem is that their claim is actually the one that's insane is that they are so hardened in their unbelief that what they're saying about Jesus is totally irrational. That they have defied all logic by saying that Satan would fight against himself and cast out demons against himself. And that it's like a a king who fights against his own kingdom and weakens himself. That doesn't make much sense. Or a, a house, people, a family who fight against themselves like... None of that would make very much sense. Why would Satan rise up against himself in verse 26? His kingdom would be divided and it would fall. And then in verse 27, Jesus gives us, he supplies a little bit of truth. He's saying, no, 
I'm not on the side of Satan, but I have actually come to bind him and to plunder his house. To rescue people who are under the clutches of Satan's grip and to give them life. But very simply, Jesus just shows them that they're not actually reasoning their way to their conclusion. That their unbelief is totally and completely irrational. And we tend to think that anyone who lands at a place of hardened unbelief has maybe gotten there like they've solved some sort of complex math problem. They've just reasoned their way to this place of saying, I'm an atheist or I'm not a Christian or whatever. But the reality is there's a lot more things involved usually when people reach that place that are not all totally in the mind, but that deal with maybe poor experiences or a heart that is just frustrated with God for some reason or a host of other things. And so maybe that was going on with these guys. They were maybe afraid of Jesus. Maybe they were jealous of Jesus's popularity. Maybe they viewed him as a threat to their authority. But whatever it is, they were well on their way to doing what Jesus said in verses 28 through 30 would be considered an unforgivable sin. So this is what he says. Truly I say to you in verse 28, all sins will be forgiven against the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. All right. So here's the question then. What is this? What is this blasphemy? against the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about. What is this unforgivable sin? There have been a number of things that have been proposed kind of over the 2,000 years of Christians studying this text and coming away with conclusions. I'm glad you're here this morning because we're going to solve it. Um, But nevertheless, we won't solve it. You can agree or disagree with my conclusion, but I think I could hopefully help you a little bit. So there were some who said that this unforgivable sin is the sin of denying Jesus. So maybe under threat of persecution or fear for your life, you recant your faith in Christ and it's impossible then to be restored. So you've committed the unforgivable sin. Others have said this is talking about apostasy. So those who are appear to be a part of the community of faith who later leave and show that they, know, no, they never were a part of the community of faith. Maybe they've committed this sin. Others have said it's just simply the sin of hardened unbelief. It is consistently rejecting and resisting the ministry of Jesus and never turning back from that point. More specifically, some have said that even a sin like suicide is an unforgivable sin because after all, it's the final act of your life and if it's unconfessed, then it must be unforgivable. Or even just for me personally, maybe you have been in this place, but I can remember as a young Christian, growing in my understanding of the word, reading passages like this, recognizing, wait a minute, there's still persistent sin in my life that I see. And there's even been times in my young Christian life where I've recognized something as sin. I've sensed the Holy Spirit is convicting me, and I've actually said, nah, I don't want to stop. I want to go do this thing instead. And then I got to a point where I was then angry with the Spirit. Why didn't you constrain me from doing this thing that I hate to do? And and I'm in that point, and I'm angry with it. Am I committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And so I remember thinking that early in my Christian life. And so all these things have been proposed, but let me just briefly say, I don't think any of those are what Jesus is talking about here. So denying Christ 
under pressure or persecution, that it has to be a forgivable sin because of the very person whose eyewitness account this gospel is based off of, Peter, right? Peter denied Jesus in a moment of intense fear for his own life, and he was later restored and forgiven by Jesus. And at the end of his life, he could write to other Christians and say that we together have an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable and unfading and being kept for us. So certainly denying Jesus and then being restored to him later, that can't be an unforgivable sin. That, that can't be the case. Or apostasy, right? Those who appeared to be a part of the community of faith and later left, that is a truly tragic thing. And elsewhere in the Bible, the scriptures warn against that kind of thing. Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, 1 John 2. That's a reality, but I don't think that's what's happening here because Jesus is not talking about people who are believing in him and then leave. He's talking about scribes who are against him from the beginning. So I don't think that's the category that he's thinking in. The third, just basic unbelief, that could be the maybe the most closely aligned thing to this passage. I don't think that's quite what it is, but that's just saying over time you just harden yourself to Jesus. I think that's true, but I don't think I think what Jesus is getting at here is a little bit more specific than that. As I mentioned, suicide that is a grievous sin. And suicide may be a sign that someone was not truly a Christian. It, it may be. But I do think it's also possible that a follower of Jesus could reach such a point of despair as to think that's the only option. And if they get to that point, I think one thing we need to remember that it's not the final act of a person's life necessarily that saves them or condemns, condemns them. It's the final act of Jesus' life that saves them. And even if they get to a point of despair, if they are trusting in Jesus... We're never told that that sin is unforgivable. And then for me, personally, it comforted me whenever I perhaps shared with brothers in Christ what I was wrestling with early in my Christian life to say, no, I, I think, Steele, what you're going through sounds more like grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit, which Paul warns us against as believers. But that is something that happens in the process of sanctification. That's that's not blasphemy against the Spirit, which is something that an unbeliever does on their way to being condemned. So we don't need to worry there. All right, so what, what is it then? Here's as best as I could define what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think it is a specific, settled, and lifelong sin in which... A person concludes that the source of Jesus' power was not the Spirit of God, but Satan. So it's a specific, settled, lifelong sin in which a person concludes that the source of Jesus' power was not the Spirit of God, but is Satan. So it's a sin that makes the Spirit a demon and Jesus his puppet. So it's very specific to what was going on here in Mark chapter 3. It's settled, meaning a person does not just have a momentary lapse in judgment or a slip of the tongue, but they've kind of sat in this. And I think it's lifelong because the reality is in the book of Acts, many of the religious leaders from Jerusalem eventually believed in Jesus. Perhaps they had thought 
through this at some point in time and maybe later repented. One thing we're not told in Mark 3 is whether or not these scribes had already committed blasphemy against the Spirit. It is possible that Jesus is warning them not to continue down the road of such hardened belief that Jesus is actually doing the work of the devil that you would be not forgiven. So a specific, settled, lifelong sin in which a person concludes the source of Jesus' power is not God, but Satan. And so I think if we're here this morning, we might be in two categories. Maybe you're relieved. Maybe you're relieved because you're saying, okay, I can go on sinning and there's always going to be an option of forgiveness later for me. If you're in that place, hear the caution that Jesus is giving here is that the longer you persist in a rebellious act, thought, or or lifestyle, the harder it will be for you later on to repent. The more calloused you will grow towards the things of God. And so hear that warning that you may not be on your way to committing an unforgivable sin, but if you continue in unrepentant sin, that is just as dangerous of a place to be because it is the way of unbelief and eventually will result in condemnation. So don't go that route. But the second category, I think if, if you are maybe plagued by this idea of have I potentially committed this, or maybe you've, you've thought at one point in your life, have I sinned so much that I have turned the spirit away from me, made him angry, and I'm just without forgiveness? The simple answer, have you committed this sin? Probably, actually, definitely not. Because if you're concerned about it, you have not committed this sin. If you are in Christ, you have not committed this sin. We can answer, maybe on Wednesday night, we'll answer the question of can people actually commit this sin today? There's some who say no, it was located just to the time of Jesus. Others say maybe, so we can chase that rabbit trail if we want on Wednesday, but just just to maybe rest you at ease a bit, I do not think hardly any of us are even close to this. Especially if you, and most certainly if you are in Christ, you cannot be guilty of this. Because here is, if you are in Christ, here's what you need to zoom your eyes in on, verses 31 through 35 the end of this passage. This is where you should make your home. If you are a follower of Jesus, his family shows up again. They're standing outside. Remember, they're the ones that said Jesus is a lunatic. He's just dealt with the people who said he's demonic. Crowds around him. People tell him your family's outside, Jesus. They want to see you. And he answers them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who sat around him, here's what he said. Here are my mother and my brothers. And then verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, my mother. So Jesus reserves some of the harshest words imaginable for the scribes. He reserves some of the most comforting words imaginable for those who know him. He tells you and I that we are closer to him, closer to his heart than his own flesh and blood. That those who sit with Jesus, those who savor Jesus, those who serve Jesus, they're closer to him than his own family. So no matter where we are this morning, if we're failing, if we're 
fledgling in our faith, if we're having a difficult week, hear that Jesus views you as his sister or as his brother. After reading this, my mind also went to Romans 8, where Paul reminds the Christians in Romans 8 that if we are children of God, then we are heirs with Jesus as our brother, that we receive the inheritance that he is promised, the inheritance of a crown of glory, of eternal life and peace and joy and bliss with God forever. For those who are in Christ, that is something that can never be taken away. And so it seems like the more these people sat around Jesus, the more they listened to Jesus, the more they grew to love Jesus. Like a magnet, they were being drawn towards him and they didn't want to go anywhere else. And I think this is the nature of true faith. It's that having Jesus, we always want more of Jesus. It's never enough just to have a glimpse. We want the whole thing. And so they're sitting around him. They're learning from him. And that is what it means to do the will of God. It is to believe in the Son of God who was empowered by the Spirit of God and know that you are then considered a child of God. So to return to that question then, how do we share this news with those who don't seem to care? Is there a good solution? Well, I don't think the solution is getting upset, writing people off, or just giving up altogether. I think the solution is to give people more of Jesus. Because the more we see of Jesus, the more we realize that he is not at all out of his mind. That he's actually the most sound, reasonable, down-to-earth, level-headed person who's ever lived. That he is consistent in everything he says. That everything he teaches turns out to be true. He's truthful in his words. He never goes back on his words. He never loses his cool. He never contradicts himself. So he, he can't be a lunatic. Does the, the pages of the gospel do not bear witness to the fact that, that somebody like Jesus is out of his mind. It just doesn't make sense. He seems to be completely in his right mind. But also, the more we see of Jesus, the more we realize he's the most kind, compassionate, loving, and merciful person who ever lived. Jesus treats the lowest members of society with dignity. Jesus treats stubborn disciples with mercy. Jesus treats people to whom he owes nothing with absolute servant-hearted humility. Does that sound like a demon to you? It cannot be that Jesus is demonic. And so if he's not a lunatic, if he's not demonic, then the the other option, and I think the best option, is to see that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. And that a day in his presence is better than a thousand days somewhere else. Let's pray.